0: Well, if you've spent any amount of time reading the Bible, whether you've just skimmed the surface or taken a deep plunge into its content, you'll know that it is a book that plays host to a particularly high volume of very provocative and confronting statements. Uh, If you and I were to try and compile the top ten list of the Bible's most confronting texts, I I imagine we'd have to take a few factors into consideration. We'd probably have to have a think about which generation in history uh, we were assuming was reading them and probably even have a think about which culture was reading them. But I suspect there is one passage that I reckon would go straight to the podium every single time. And that is Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. This is a passage that was penned by the Apostle Paul. It's a passage that we can harmonize with the events that led up to the Jerusalem Council. And I would be prepared to argue that it's one of the most provocative statements across all generations, across all cultures, in the entire Bible. This is what it says. Galatians 1, 8 and 9. But even if we, or an angel from heaven... Should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul is issuing us with a timeless truth and a solemn warning that there is only one gospel. One. And should any individual or any institution attempt to change or alter that message, either by an outright creed or a subtle clause, they place themselves under the anathema of Almighty God. That is to say, the wrath and curse of Almighty God. You see, the gospel is not only good news, but it's powerful news. Throughout the history of the church, the Holy Spirit has continually employed the services of gospel proclamation to make dead hearts come alive to Jesus. The apostle Peter preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost and bang, 3,000 souls were added to the church in a day. The Apostle Paul had experienced that radical heart transformation himself on the road to Damascus and this Christian-killing Pharisee had now become an apostle and shepherd of the flock. He'd seen the radical transformation in the hearts of pagan Gentiles as he preached the gospel throughout the Mediterranean and he would later write to the church in Rome, "'I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes.'" Those weren't just words on a page for the Apostle Paul. He had seen that power. He'd personally experienced that power. And so he spent his life not only preaching this powerful message, but preserving it. You see, Paul was thoroughly acquainted with the reality that the human heart is prone to drift in one of two directions, either towards legalism on the one side or licentiousness on the other. And he knew that without the accurate proclamation of the gospel that puts both of those extremes to the sword, souls throughout the world would be left eternally damned. You've got to get the gospel right. There's a sense in which we can say if the Jerusalem Council didn't happen, you and I wouldn't be here today. The stakes were high and Paul knew it. And so as we transition from Acts chapter 14 to Acts chapter 15, we find Paul switching gears somewhat. He, he moves from the missionary gospel proclamation mode to military gospel preservation mode. He has to switch gears from 14 to 15. Look again with me to verse 1. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You see, in uh, first century Judaism, before the arrival of Christianity uh, came on scene, it was common practice for Gentile proselytes, that is Gentile converts, uh, to be circumcised before being completely accepted into Judaism. Now, you could be what was called a God-fearer, which was kind of a a halfway Jew. If you were a Gentile who had a respect for the teachings of the Old Testament, especially its ethics, and if you appreciated synagogue life, you could be what was called a God-fearer. But if you wanted to be a fully-orbed Jew, you had to get the snip, as it were. And so when Christ arrives on the scene and inaugurates the new covenant, there were Christians of Jewish heritage, especially Pharisaic heritage, who believed that for Gentiles to be truly converted and receive the blessings of salvation that were inherent with being a child of Abraham, they needed to bear the mark of circumcision and um, adhere to the laws of Moses. They effectively just believed that Christianity was just a kind of Judaism 2.0, if you like. It was um, something where they just looked at the Gentiles and said, they really need to become more like us first. That was their mindset. But how is Paul going to respond to this notion? Look at verse 2. Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Spot the physician, right? No small dissension and debate with them. It's quite a clinical assessment. This is Luke's very nice way of saying, like bedside mannered way of saying, it got really ugly and heated out there in Antioch. You see, knowing the gravity of what was at stake, Paul switches to DEFCON 1. He loads the pastoral shotgun, as it were, and he says, no, to assert such a position that someone's legal right standing before God is contingent on circumcision, that's, just, that's not just some subtle turn of the theological rudder. That, that's to completely abandon ship concerning Christianity. That is a false gospel. And unfortunately, this same false gospel was not only plaguing the church in Antioch, but it was making its way into the Galatian churches that Paul had just planted on his first missionary journey. Paul is quite agitated, and his agitation is warranted. I love these words from J.V. Fesco. He says, Paul's agitation, therefore, should not be likened to an oppressive or angry master who verbally abuses his subordinates. Rather, Paul is like a distressed parent who cries out to stop a meandering child from heading into a busy street, knowing that the child's life is in great peril. I'm sure the parents in the room can relate. So what happens next? Well, not only did Paul write Galatians, but we're told in the second half of verse 2 that he, Barnabas, and a handful of others made their way up to Jerusalem to settle this matter with the apostles and elders who were stationed there. Now, we kind of have to pause here for for just a moment and, and ask ourselves a little bit of a question Why Jerusalem? I mean, the issue at hand is playing out in Antioch and the churches of southern Galatia, so why would you head south to Jerusalem to sort it out? The fact that they make their way to Jerusalem has, historically speaking, opened the floor to a discussion on church governance. Now, is this text saying that if a local church is having some unresolved theological issues, it needs to run back to the mothership, as it were? Does this text definitively affirm some form of Anglican, Episcopalian, even Presbyterian form of uh, church governance? I mean, that if your local parish or your local church is under the pump, you should really consult your regional diocese or your assembly or even the archbishop over your region? Is that what this text is saying for us? Some have proposed these kinds of arguments from Acts chapter 15. And don't you worry, the the congregational Baptists have their say too. They love to come to the party on verse 22, where it says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them. And so congregational voting gets voiced from Acts chapter 15. But in response, though I I deeply respect my Anglican and Presbyterian brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm going to quote a lot of Anglicans today, and I attend a Presbyterian Presbyterian college. I, I think they make up the brain's trust of Australian theology. And though I think there is a kind of broad Diet Coke principle that it is healthy for a local church to have safety nets outside of itself, I'm personally not convinced that's what this passage is explicitly prescribing for us today. I think the reason they head up to Jerusalem is twofold. Firstly, I think this is a unique first century situation when the scripture writing Resurrection witnessing apostles were still alive and they could be consulted on serious matters such as these. And secondly, I think they went to Jerusalem because that was really the source of the problem. That's where it had originated. If you jump ahead to verse 24 with me, look at what James wrote uh, in the letter that eventually gets sent out. He says, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us, that is to say, from the church in Jerusalem, And troubled you, the church in Antioch, with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. The churches in Antioch and Galatia were under the pump because some uncommissioned agitators from Jerusalem came and stirred up the pot. And so Paul and the others decide, right, let's not bother medicating symptoms, let's go after the cause of the disease. Pack your bags, fellas, we're heading to Jerusalem. I think that's what we're seeing here in Acts 15. But having arrived in Jerusalem, though they were thoroughly welcomed by the majority and though they joyfully relayed all that God had done among the Gentiles during their first missionary journey, they soon encountered the drumbeat of legalism once more. Verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, Be careful there with verse 5. Don't miss the start of it. It says some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Luke is showing us that this was an inside job. That's quite sobering. This is a work out your salvation with fear and trembling moment. John Stott said it this way. He's an Anglican. The church's greatest troublemakers now was then... And not those outside who oppose, ridicule, ridicule and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. So in response, the apostles and the elders, they gather together to consider the matter. And after some back-and-forth debate, I tell you, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall there. I probably could have RPL'd my seminary degree being a fly on the wall. But what eventually happens is that the apostle Peter stands up and he delivers a speech. And if you can boil it down and paraphrase it, he's effectively saying this. Gentlemen, have you forgotten what God has done among us since the beginning? Do do you remember the early days, all those years ago, when I took a little trip down to Caesarea and I, I met with Cornelius and his household and God testified to me that he makes no distinctions and that I shouldn't call any person common or unclean? Listen, I watched the Holy Spirit fall upon them in the exact same measure it fell upon us at Pentecost. And guess what? Though I baptized many converts that day, I didn't circumcise a single one. Why? Because I didn't need to. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit had cleansed their hearts by faith. They didn't need any further ceremonial procedures to be made right right before God. The Holy Spirit had cleansed them. He's saying, boys, we really need to hang up our old covenant boots. We need to put that cue in the rack. You say these Gentiles need to keep the law of Moses. Right, let me ask you, how's that working out for you? I invite you all. Take a long, hard look at yourself. How are you traveling, obeying the law of Moses? He says. Not too well, I presume. You're putting a yoke on their neck that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. We can't bear the yoke of the law. So why impose it on them? That's insanity. But sadly, this is the kind of legalistic, self-righteous posture that was rife in first century Judaism. Despite what some recent scholarship has tried to push back on, you simply can't deny that legalism encapsulated the entire religion. About a month ago I was studying the book of Galatians and in one commentary I stumbled upon an epitaph from a first century uh, Jewish tombstone inscription. Here's what it said. Here lies Regina. She will live again, return to the light again, for she can hope that she will rise to the life promised as a real assurance to the worthy and the pious in that she has deserved... To possess an abode in the hallowed land. This your piety has assured you. This your chaste life. This your love for your people. This your observance of the law. Your devotion to your wedlock, the glory of which was dear to you. Here's the kicker for all these deeds, your hope for the future is assured. Where is that assurance grounded? That is a lamentable inscription. But it does encapsulate the insanity of the Judaism that was going on in Jesus' day. And we need to be reminded of this because all too often we find ourselves subscribing to this kind of thinking. Let me ask you this morning, are are you carrying a heavy yoke on your neck? Perhaps for some of you this morning, your yoke comes in the form of a false gospel. Listen, throughout the world of Christendom, there are a lot of so-called ministers who say that the death of Jesus Christ was necessary. I think most would say that. But tragically, there aren't as many who are prepared to say that the death of Jesus on the cross was sufficient. That it alone was enough to purchase our freedom. Some of you need to hear that. No amount of conduct, no amount of ceremony can save you. Only Christ and Christ alone His finished work on the cross. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Necessity and sufficiency aren't the same thing. And then perhaps of some of you this morning, your yoke comes in the same form as this very passage. You're you're hanging on to some old covenant stipulations or some other man-made commandments and they're weighing you down. Listen, I'm very aware of the fact that there is a sober conversation to be had uh, when it comes to the... The degree of continuity and discontinuity that exists between the Old and the New Covenant. The theology can be quite complex. I'm still yet to land the plane on some of it myself. And, and I recognize, as we will see in a moment, that there is breathing room for fellow Christians to disagree on where exactly we should draw the lines. But perhaps for some of you, it's like you don't see any discontinuity at all. The New Covenant may as well not be new. You're buckling under the weight of the Mosaic Law or some misplaced interpretation of the Mosaic Law. Or perhaps there's some other man-made rule that you've carved into stone when it should have only ever been written in pencil under the headline "Guidelines" with an eraser on standby. And then maybe for some of us, we're, we're not only putting a heavy yoke on our own neck, but we're placing it on other people. Historically, Christian, circus, Christian churches we we kind of suck at this, to be honest. I mean, how many Cigarette smoking, beer drinking, tattooed covered, Sabbath breaking, non-head covering wearing, new converts have walked through church doors only to be turned away by recovering Pharisees like you and me. It's a tragedy. We think they need to be more like us first. The Holy Spirit has cleansed their hearts by faith that we turn them away. Nah, you need to become more like me. Well, sometimes what we do is we legislate based on our own personal convictions. Listen, moment of truth, I'll be honest. There is a reason why I personally don't have Instagram anymore. There was a time in my life when it was a pathway drug to more explicit material. But I'm not going to stand here and write the 11th commandment, thou shalt not have Instagram. That's between you and the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, when a Gentile converted from paganism into Judaism, it was said of them that they were to take up the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus comes along and says, No, put that down. I've got something much easier for you. The 19th century Anglican minister, J.C. Ryle, said it this way. He said, Compared to the service of the world and sin, compared to the yoke of Jewish ceremonies and the bondage of human superstition, Christ's service is in the highest sense easy and light. His yoke is no more a burden than the feathers are to a bird. His commandments are not grievous. His ways are ways of pleasantness and all his paths are peace. Peter finishes with those incredible words there in verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now, notice what he doesn't say there. He he doesn't adopt some ethnocentric posture and say, we believe that they will be saved just as we will, because we're such a big deal. No, he, he kind of flips it a little bit. He says, we believe that we will be saved. The Jews who need saving just as they will. The structure of his sentence levels the ethnic playing field. Gentiles don't have to become like Jews. We're saved on precisely the same terms as them. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. I'm not sure who said it, but I really like it. It's on screen. Jesus plus something equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing Equals everything. So, with this speech, Peter silences the room and it segues in an into an opportunity for Paul and Barnabas, being able to share some more about what God had done, done among the Gentiles. But then speech number two surfaces. And this time it's the Apostle James, the younger brother of Jesus. James was in some sense superintending this meeting. And even before he opens his mouth, you actually need to appreciate the high degree of respect that that the Pharisaic party had for James. He was their champion. Whatever he said, went. Uh, From church history, we know that he was a particularly devout Christian. He was nicknamed James the Just. And he's the guy who wrote the book of James, which, as you know, is a book all about what Christians should actually do, which is the kind of theology a recovering Pharisee would really like. They would love James. And if you want biblical proof for the uh, Pharisee's party's reverence for the Apostle James, just look at Paul's account in Galatians 2, uh, verses 11 and 12. It says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. You see, although James never actually sent them, they claimed his authority. He was their champion. But now James is going to address the council and he feels no need to bring forward any more eyewitness testimony. He's heard enough. He simply reaches for the highest source of authority that's available to him, namely the Old Testament scriptures. John Stott said it this way, councils have no authority in the church, unless it can be shown that their conclusions are in accord with Scripture. Good one to keep in mind. And so, beginning in verse 16, he quotes from the prophet Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. He says, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James recognizes that the prophetic promise of Gentile inclusion is manifesting itself right here in front of him. And pairing together the the prophetic and apostolic witness, he concludes with a list of four practical requirements that will help Jewish and Gentile believers to live in harmony together. But when, when you take a look at this list, it's a little bit odd, right? I mean... It's kind of like James has played a game of Bible roulette and just randomly plucked his top four commandments and said, yeah, righto, look, it's been a long meeting. Just keep these four and she'll be right, mate. That, it's a bizarre list. I mean, take a look at them. Verse 20, abstain from things polluted by idols. Okay, righto, interesting. And from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, come on, James. I mean, Surely that's a given no matter what your heritage is. Why would you put that one in the letter? That's a moral command, not a ceremonial one and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Okay, curious list. Now commentators are a little bit divided as to why exactly James put together these four commandments uh, in the in the letter. It's a, it's a curious list, as I said. Some say they were selected so that the Jews and Gentiles uh, could enjoy table fellowship together and share a meal. Uh, that's a pretty good explanation, but then why the sexual immorality? Uh, I'm not sure what kind of table fellowship they would have been having for that to be the case. So I'm personally not persuaded on that view. Uh, there's some other views that, that have been put forward, but if you're asking me, though I wouldn't go to the stake for it, the most persuasive argument that I have read is that James is saying that Gentile Christians should avoid participating in temple feasts. That's a place where sexual immorality typically went hand in hand with idolatrous meat offerings. Pagan temples usually had temple prostitutes. So in effect, James would be saying... Gentiles don't need to be circumcised to be saved. That would be putting a yoke around their neck. It would promote a false gospel. However, a word to the Gentiles now. You've come from a background that is so far removed from anything your Jewish brothers and sisters are used to. I mean, their consciences are particularly sensitive when it comes to eating food that still has blood on it and that has been sacrificed uh, to pagan idols. So for the sake of their consciences, do you reckon that you can abstain, abstain from them for a while? I'd hate for you to put a stumbling block in front of them. That's what James would be saying. And so it begs the question for us, is is this letter that got sent around the Mediterranean binding on the 21st century church? I don't think so, no. It was a historically conditioned letter that was of temporary necessity given the sheer volume of Gentiles that were making their way into the church. It comes out there in verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses had... Has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What's he saying? Basically, because there are synagogues spread right throughout the Mediterranean, it's going to take a long time for these two cultures to get used to living in harmony with one another. As one commentator said, there was going to be need for long term sensitivity and generosity on all sides for there to be harmony in the Mediterranean church. So no, this letter isn't binding on us today, but it does highlight some underlying principles that ought to affect how we operate with one another. Let me give you some examples. Years ago, I had a friend whose conscience was particularly sensitive uh, to buying and eating meat uh, that had been sacrificed to idols, specifically halal meat that you can purchase at supermarkets, either knowingly or unknowingly, at least was the case at the time. Now, personally, biblically, I, I disagree with their conclusions. In, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul makes it pretty clear. He kind of taps the church in Corinth on the shoulder and says, those idols don't exist. doesn't matter. Eat away. And then Jesus said it in Matthew 15. Pardon me, Matthew 15 is already on the screen, I think. He says, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth this defiles a person. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. So as to my friend who, who didn't want to eat halal meat, listen if that's their conviction, God bless them. I, I, I disagree with them but I'm happy to go vegan for a night. I, I don't want to cause them to stumble. Listen, I, I personally, Jay O'Donnell, me personally, my conscience is clean to eat a T-bone steak on Good Friday. I'm okay with that. But there are members of my family who I won't do that with. I'm, I'm going to eat a prawn cocktail. I don't want to cause them to stumble. I was at a barbecue with a few boys from church a month or so ago and one of them shared, oh, I don't, I don't personally drink alcohol. I said, oh, do you mind if I do? I don't, I don't want to cause you to stumble. They said, no, that's fine. doesn't worry me at all. So it was beer o'clock. But if it wasn't okay, well, it was lemon, lime, and bitters o'clock. <laughs> this kind of thing should be normative in the church of Jesus Christ. We all have different personal convictions and sensitivities based on our background. And we need to learn to live in harmony with one another. Listen, we would all do really well to pay attention to Paul's instructions in Romans chapter 14. Uh, Allow me to read a good chunk of it for you. It should be on screen. I think Paul just masterfully covers and clearly lays this out for us in Romans 14. I was nearly going to read the whole chapter, but I'm just going to read 1 through 6, followed by 13 to 19. And as I read, just have a think about the implications of these verses on your life and your own situation. Why doesn't the band come and join me? As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord and gives thanks to God. 13-19 to Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. How should we view the Jerusalem Council? I think David Peterson sums it up well. The Spirit's work in leading the Jerusalem Council was to provide a solution consistent with the truth of the gospel enabling Jewish and Gentile Christians to live together in love. And so my prayer this morning is that we would experience that kind of gospel-infused love here at the project. Let's pray. But before I do, could our Sunday morning deacons um, grab the kids from Project Kids? That would be great. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in this grand deposit of scripture you have given us you have taken us back to that incredible moment in history when the Mediterranean church gathered together to discuss this issue that could have wrecked the church forever and Father that you by your spirit you saw to it that the gospel was preserved and so was harmony in the church Father would you keep our minds and hearts sharp on the gospel and what it actually is. I pray that we would all proclaim it faithfully as a church. And Lord, would we live out its implications in harmony with one another, not causing one another to stumble, but living in such a way for the mutual upbuilding of the body. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.